0: You're listening to Crohn's and Colitis Foundation Perspectives on ReachMD. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant
1: from Bristol-Myers Squibb. Before beginning, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. And now, here's Dr. Freddie Caldera. Hello, my name is Dr. Freddie Caldera, and I'd like to welcome you to our discussion on managing IBD care for diverse patient populations a multidisciplinary panel discussion. I'm an associate professor of medicine at University of Wisconsin-Madison in the Department of Medicine and Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology. I'm an IBDologist, and I have the pleasure of being joined by three great faculty. Dr. Stacey O'Bide, she's a board-certified clinical health psychologist and a board-certified specialist in obesity and weight management. She's currently the director of behavioral health education and family medicine residency, the primary track coordinator for the clinical psychology internship and associate professor and clinical in the department of family and community medicine. She also has a joint appointment in the department of psychiatry and behavioral sciences, and most recently was an assistant dean for the faculty in the office of faculty with the Long School of Medicine at UT Health San Antonio. We are also joined by Dr. Bot, a clinical pharmacy specialist in gastroenterology at Cleveland Clinic, where she oversees the medication experience, including education, safety monitoring, and adverse effect management of patients with inflammatory bowel disease. In addition to her clinical practice, Dr. Bot also does clinical research and participation in education. And finally, we're joined by Dr. Lisa Walter, She's a gastroenterologist in the New York City area with a focus on inflammatory bowel disease. She oversees the Advanced Fellowship in Inflammatory Bowel Disease offered by NYU's Langone's Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, but she also leads the center's educational efforts, which include free health seminars for patients and the public. So today, we'll be discussing some of the underlying themes from the last webinar through the looking glass, Managing IBD Care for Diverse Patient Populations, which Dr. Malter did a great job of discussing the changing landscape of IBD care. And she also spoke with two patients from black and African-American and Hispanic background about their journey and some of the experiences they went along the way, which included having a delay in diagnosis because underlying bias, Having issues with access to care and how that impacted their patient's journey, some challenges they faced through health literacy, and talking about shared decision, and talking about shared decision making and how it's important what to consider the patient's cultural and values. So, to discuss this issue, we're going to cover some learning objectives and speak to our experiences from the lens of each of our disciplines. We're gonna discuss cultural and cognitive biases that may contribute to health disparities in IBD for different IBD patient populations, including Black and African-American, Hispanic or Latino, and Asian. We're going to identify differences in disease perception and self-management within IBD patient populations. And we're gonna describe shared decision-making models or methods that may work to facilitate open communication between the patient and the clinician so we can provide the best care for our patients. And before we begin, we can we'll discuss what the medical background and what we all do. So Dr. Bide, I'll start with you. What experience do you have in dealing with the IBD population? And what has been your experience as far as some of the health disparities these patients may experience or have experience?
2: Absolutely. Uh, So in one of my roles, uh, I work as a behavioral health consultant uh, in the primary care setting. Uh, So uh, my specialty is clinical health psychology. Uh, What that means is I work with all types of patients uh, with all presenting ages uh, on different health conditions and helping them uh, adjust to having that chronic health condition like IBD, really helping them make health behavior changes uh, that can improve their management of IBD
1: uh, over the long run. Thank you. That's a great answer. Um, Dr. Bott, tell us about some of the some of the things you have experienced. And I'm especially interested in your prior uh, professional experience, you were working in the Boston area. And I know you worked at an underserved, um, worked with a high underserved population.
3: Yeah, thank you, Dr. Caldera. So I've been practicing an inflammatory bowel disease for about three years now. And as a pharmacist, my role really consists of anything related to medication management. And I'm really doing focusing on education, hotel monitoring of medication, to management of side effects and health maintenance needs. Um, in my role, so I typically interact with patients primarily one-on-one, and I work alongside with gastroenterologists to optimize patient care and outcomes. So as she alluded, um, my prior position, um, I worked at the largest state senior institution in the New England area, and the patient demographic of the patients that we have seen in this institution consisted primarily of coming from an underserved population. Um, And even where there are more, about 23, early 27% did not speak English as their primary language. So um, I work with a very diverse patient population. And also, I'm part of the South Asian IBD Alliance, which is an organization that convened earlier last year. And it was designed to help minimize disparities to um, spell some stigma and promote early diagnosis and improve access to treatment, um, particularly for those of South Asian origin. Very excited to be here today, so thank you for having me.
1: No, thank you for joining us. And Dr. Malter, tell us, uh, tell us about your experience and obviously your last webinar, you taught us a lot. So tell us about your experience.
0: Thank you, Dr. Caldera, and thank you for having me tonight. Um, So I'm um, an IBD clinician um, based out of NYU, um, where I spend um, a fair amount of my time um, involved in direct patient care. Um, And in that role, I exclusively work out of our city hospital um, and have taken care of the underserved with inflammatory bowel diseases um, dating back to 2011. Um, And in this work, um, every day um, I see patients That encounter numerous challenges based on um, their race, ethnicity, um, socioeconomic circumstances, and um, and social determinants of health that impact their ability to um, thrive and live with their chronic illness Um, and. In addition to my clinical work, I also um, work actively to try and help um, some of the educational gaps that occur um, in training in gastroenterology, which can sometimes lead to the delays in care that our patients um, see and probably many of you have experienced um, when you see patients as a second or third um, referral after they've uh, been seen and and not truly diagnosed with their condition.
1: Well, thank you, and Dr. Malter, I th- I think we could probably both agree as the both gastroenterologists. I mean, diagnosing an, a patient with IBD from the patient's perspective, even without any disparities and without, with great health literacy, medical literacy, it's a challenging diagnosis and journey to go through. So I imagine a lot of your patients, I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, and while we don't have the diversity of New York, um, it's a tough diagnosis to initially get and to learn how, where to go and who to call and when you should call your gastroenterologist that I imagine some of your patients from different backgrounds or, or like Dr. Bott said, who may not speak the language, all those become more bigger barriers for them to feel better.
0: Definitely true. Um, I, yeah, I think um, we see a very diverse patient population with um, prisoners and patients who have just moved to the United States from um, from outside of the country, um, from all parts of the world uh, where I do practice, which is very unique um, and presents a great challenge. Like I said, every day, um, we, um, I think, you know, Many patients, um, as we've heard two sample stories in our last webinar, experience a bias where they're told that they can't have inflammatory bowel disease. And as clinicians, we know that There is no one gold standard test that says you have ulcerative colitis or you have Crohn's disease, and therefore getting to the diagnosis in and of itself can really require a heavy lift um, for patients and and for clinicians um, in terms of ordering the right tests in a timely fashion um, and, and Walking away from the compilation of results that you get to land on the diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease Um, and even starting to explain that to patients can be quite challenging, especially um, with language barriers um, and cultural barriers, especially those that can coexist with gastrointestinal illnesses, um, because GI illnesses can be very embarrassing for patients to deal with um, and very frightening for them to be faced with, especially if um, within their own communities, um, they're not getting the support that that they may need. Um, It's really important, um, I've noted, to try and meet my patients where they're at um, by developing a rapport with them and getting them to hopefully feel comfortable with me so that they're willing to share um, their own personal experience so that I can understand how I can best help them.
1: And That's great. And thank you for all you do. I'm sure your patients love you. And, and on that note, I think we probably sh- should talk about how once we diagnose this patient, how we deal with cultural or socioeconomic situations in the practice setting and I think I'll start with you dr. bot as a clinical pharmacist I mean once we diagnose someone and we start talking about treatment I'd be interested in how you look at socioeconomic barriers because some of our treatment options can be very expensive and I, I'd be interested to see what barriers you how you deal with those barriers and also as you, Are part of this uh, South Asian IBD Alliance, and if there are any cultural differences from that standpoint that you have dealt with?
3: Yeah, so that's a great question. And I'm definitely mindful of cultural and socioeconomic um, factors because, as you mentioned, Dr. Caldera, they definitely influence medication management. So I'd like to kind of break it up in regards to cultural considerations. When I'm meeting with patients, I always prefer to check what their preferred languages are. And I like to utilize interpreters appropriately to ensure that we're really having an open communication, um, that they're receiving the proper information that they need, and that the proper management strategies are being conveyed. i um, also mindful about treatment hesitation, um, particularly in regards to biologic. I think that we'll see a lot of this across um, patient populations. And so... In this context, I definitely try to dive in a little bit more to see the potentially cultural factors that may be a potential barrier and address these accordingly if I can. Um, I also ask about complementary and alternative alternative medication use because um, this is often a approach that may be emphasized in certain cultures. And so I'd like to always assess and make sure that that's not necessarily going to be a barrier or a hindrance to escalation and therapy if needed. And then from a socioeconomic standpoint, I'm always thinking about insurance coverage as you probably can imagine. And I'm really uh, looking to address any potential barriers to medication affordability and access. And so for example, if we're going to be recommending an infusion, I always uh, ask about if they have the necessary transportation accommodation, or do they even have the work flexibility and can they essentially address all these components that are needed for them to be on treatment consistently. So in general, I'm looking to see a big picture, but I'm also trying to make sure that all these puzzle pieces um, that that affect that individual patient basically lines up, because at the end of the day, we can make all these medication recommendations, but if the patient can't commit or they can't access the treatment, then our recommendations are essentially useless. The South Asian Alliance IBD group is doing a great job in terms of addressing a lot of cultural factors. Um, In the South Asian population particularly, there's the stigma that IBD is not necessarily a real disease. Uh, And there's a lot of big, especially on complementary and alternative medicines. So that organization is doing a great job in trying to dispel some of the stigma and some of the uh, perceptions, if you will. And even from an economic um, factor, one thing that kind of I find interesting is the fact that there's actually differences in terms of medication assets and cost, both within the United States and internationally. So the organization's done a really fantastic job in trying to kind of bridge these gaps together, bring clinicians in both the U.S. and international together uh, to potentially collaborate and see how globally we can improve patient care for patients with IBD.
1: Okay. Well, that sounds great. And thank you for all the work you are doing. Um, Dr. Walter. it sounds like you were telling us that this is probably something you experience every day when you're doing IBD clinic to some degree, whether it might be a cultural or socioeconomic uh, situations. Could you give us how you deal with these situations?
0: Yeah, so to be honest, it's rare that, a patient doesn't have um, a challenge that they're facing. I think even, even in the best of circumstances, um, when um, there are not um, socioeconomic factors or racial factors, I think every patient can struggle with with chronic illness, but some of those can be um, more significant um, depending on psychosocial factors, um, economic status, and and race, especially with with the bias um, that some patients have faced. Um, I really try, you know, we take care as clinicians of two diseases, and from the outside, that can sound. Maybe, maybe boring to other clinicians who might take care of a wider array of conditions. But I think in, in IBD, we know that it's two diseases that can play out in so many different ways um, and so different for each patient, even when two people in the same family have the condition. Um, and I find that that's the case with kind of all of these different factors and really trying to understand the patient, um, taking a very personalized approach to their care, which includes thinking about their disease, um, and what types of medications would be best suited to treat their medical, the medical aspect of their disease, but also taking into account who they are. Can they get to your appointments? Do they have family support? Do they have transportation? Do they have the resources to get their medication? Um, what um, psychosocial aspects um, of their disease or their life are at play. Um, and understanding these factors up front is really going to help set up um, success for the patient or help you get to a place uh, of success, which success for one patient may look very, very different for than success for another patient. So in that personalized approach, kind of trying to understand what the goals are for that particular patient and eliciting them from the patient themselves, because um, we as clinicians may put out a strategy that we think is very manageable and we can see to the other side of it um, where the patient will be well and back on back on track. Um, but if the patient's expectations are very different from, from that of a clinician, that mismatch can be really hard and can create Uh, a negative dynamic between the clinician and the patient, um, which is obviously not what we're trying to do. We're all here to try and get our patients better and be able to live their lives. So really trying to understand and align um, and depending on the resources that the patients need, sometimes those resources can be obtained locally within my own practice setting, um, sometimes going beyond my practice setting to my institution on a larger level, and then also being aware of resources that are available to patients, including many um, that the foundation provides um, in order to optimize the patient's um, outcomes.
1: No, that's that's great, and I agree with you on so many levels. Um, In my practice, I I typically ask questions, a couple of questions that are not medically related where I love to know what people do. I love to know what their family life is like and what they love to do because I'm sure you've experienced this, Dr. Malter, where someone with inflammatory bowel disease, their life becomes different and they get used to a new normal. And sometimes at least knowing what they love to do, what they can't do, Can help you appreciate when you're going to get them better, and depending on their social life, you know, it can depend on if you're asking them to do too much and you're kind of setting them up to fail. So, Dr. Obaid, as a clinical health psychologist, Um, I want to make sure you're with your expertise. You're telling us and any providers and the providers listening of how we should be dealing with these situations.
2: Absolutely. And I just want to definitely uh, recognize doctors Bott and Malter. I think the approaches that they uh, shared and they use are absolutely fantastic. Uh, really a, taking a, a personalized approach to the patient's needs that's sitting right in front of them. So uh, I definitely echo uh, what they shared. Uh, an additional approach that I like to use, and I encourage other clinicians to consider or think about using, is something called uh, cultural hu- cultural humility. And uh, there's lots of different definitions that are out there on cultural humility, but one of the ones that I really like is from the National Institutes uh, of Health, and they define cultural humility as really this lifelong process of self-reflection Um, on the part of the clinician, so on us, uh, as well as self-critique, where we are not only learning about uh, our patient's culture, uh, the person who's sitting in front of us, but also examining our own beliefs, our own cultural identities, our own values, and how that might impact our care with the person sitting uh, in front of us. Uh, I think sometimes, uh, it's really easy to to maybe think or assume we're doing the best for our patient or the families that we're serving because, well, this is what I would do if this was the situation I was in. Uh, but sometimes um, that might not be the best approach for the patient or the family uh, because we're not necessarily taking the lens of uh, their experience. We're putting our own experience into the situation. So uh, I really appreciate cultural humility, just because it helps us take a step back. It helps us slow down in the process, especially in a very busy clinical setting to say, okay, what am I bringing to the table? What might I be introducing into the conversation with the patient or family that might be ignoring their point of view? So uh, I definitely uh, would encourage clinicians to think about cultural humility as an approach to use with their patients and families.
1: That is, that is great. Could you, would you mind just sharing um, for our providers who might not be familiar with this? What are some open-ended questions where, you know, at the, I, I like to start an appointment of like, how can I help you today? Or what can I do? What would be good ways to make sure that we're meeting patients' needs from that standpoint?
2: I think something that you mentioned a moment ago uh, about how you start conversations with your patients, I, I really liked. You talked about getting a sense of what do you do for work, uh, what's what's a typical day look like for you. Uh, I think that can really open up the conversation to navigating into really getting a sense of what their values are. Uh, what is it that's important to them? Uh, whether you're talking about it in the context of their care or just in general, because uh, whether or not the patient or family realizes it when they're speaking in general terms, you can still connect that back to their IBD care. Uh, so if someone talks about, I-, I really love spending time with my grandchildren, uh, it's the, my highlight of, of my week is spending time with them, uh, but maybe they're having some trouble with with adherence, Uh, maybe they're having some trouble uh, taking their medications consistently or uh, changing their diet. You can really link that back to, you know, I really want to do, you know, make a plan that works best for you. Uh, I know that you've told me you've had some trouble with sticking to some of the dietary changes needed to manage your IBD. Uh, And you also mentioned to me that you love being a grandparent. And so I want to make sure we have a plan that keeps you here long enough to do these things that you enjoy doing with your grandchild. So I wonder if it's okay if we talk about additional ways to help you with your diet. So you're really linking their values, their expressed values with what, what their IBD goals of care are. So that's one maybe concrete example that clinicians can think about incorporating into their conversations with patients and families.
1: Well, great. That's And that's a great example because honestly, what we want to do is, we want to acknowledge these issues and help providers know what to do. So thank you. And and I think on that note, we, we've we talked about some of the challenges already in this space, but I think overcoming these challenges is is a big topic. So Dr. Malter, why don't we start with you? I mean, you already told us a lot of these challenges, but what do you do? Who do you reach out to? Do you have a great nurse at? helps you with all these resources, or what do you do?
0: Um, So um, kind of in line with working at a a city hospital, um, we tend to be under-resourced, and so I can't say I have a great go-to for a majority of these issues. I've gotten creative, I would say over my time um, working there. And so I I would say um, some of the strong, some of the things that have really helped me are strong relationships with clinicians in different divisions and departments. So when our patients have needs that go beyond um, the gastrointestinal tract, which as we know, inflammatory bowel disease doesn't just limit itself to the gastrointestinal tract. Um, I kind of have uh, my go-to clinicians that um, work in my practice site but sort of can understand the um, the urgency with which some of our patients need to be seen, not all the time but you know having those people to reach out to so that, Um, Sometimes it can take 90 days to get an appointment in a particular clinic and an IBD patient who's on immunosuppressive medication can't afford to wait 90 days. Um, And so, um, you know, getting help um, booked into those more urgent slots, um, having those clinician connections, um, I think is helpful. we do have, um, being an underserved hospital, we do have uh, resources in our pharmacy to help with patient assistance programs. And I do rely on that quite heavily. Um, many of our medications are extremely costly as you're all aware. And um, getting the medication is is one thing, but then there can be limitations on administering medications, especially medications that um, are parenteral in nature. Um, and so working with um our, our team member who oversees all of the patient assistance programs at our hospital um, has been really instrumental. Um. But then also trying to work closely with um, either our nursing services or nursing services that are provided through some of the pharmaceutical companies um, that help support patients in accessing their medications, delivering their medications, um, and having resources um, during ongoing therapy have been really helpful to keeping my patients on track. Um, and then we do have some, um, we keep kind of a list of clinicians that are able to see patients at a reduced fee um for things like nutrition services um psychosocial needs things like that um and so um i'm truly grateful for all of those um clinicians who sort of appreciate the needs um and the vast needs of the ibd patient um and just keep clear communication lines open between those clinicians um as well as uh to the patients to make sure they understand why they need the support of these different um, different um, people in order or members of their care team in order to um, get them to uh, a place of wellness.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all those answers. And Dr. Bide, you gave us some great insight of, you know, how we should approach this. But when a patient opens up and tells us about those challenges, what would you recommend of how to deal with that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, cultural humility sounds uh, great uh, in practice, uh, but the the work involved um, can be difficult, uh, can be challenging just because it's asking a lot of the clinician to do a lot of introspection, uh, a lot of self-reflection, especially when you have patients uh, who have different experiences uh, than you. Even if you are from a similar cultural background from the person sitting across from you, uh, you still have very different life experiences. And so that can be uh, challenging to take a step back uh, and, and dig into some of the potential biases that uh, could be there, that could be impacting uh, the your care that you're providing to the patient or the care that the team is providing. And so I think that can be a challenge just because um, self-reflection is can be uncomfortable. Uh, It's not necessarily an easy thing to do, especially if you've not done that before. Uh, And so I think uh, that is a potential challenge, but also uh, has some great solutions to it in terms of digging into some of the literature out there on cultural humility. There's lots of good podcasts. There's lots of good uh, articles out there that don't take that long to dig into and to begin to learn how to do this. Uh, so if you're a clinician out there uh, thinking about wanting to try this with the patient, but you might be nervous about doing this, um, I would encourage you to give it a try anyway. Uh, look into the resources to help support uh, the work that you're doing in this space, because I, I guarantee your patients will appreciate uh, this approach that you take with them.
1: Thank you. Well, sounds like I got to download some new podcasts when I'm uh, when I'm out exercising. So thank you for that. Um, and lastly, Dr. Bod, I imagine you may be pulled in some of these scenarios many times as a clinical pharmacist, just dealing with, you know, how expensive our medicines are and if there's any way you can support these patients with patient assistance. But I'd be interested in your take on, on this topic.
3: Yeah, so I think Dr. Matai, um, touched a lot upon what we do on terms of medication Assets. So in the context of medication management, um, being mindful of additional considerations and available resources is really essential. And so I have worked with patients that have been told, for example, that biologic therapy is poison um, and that they're sick because they haven't utilized complementary treatments. So in this kind of situation or context, um, I think really providing disease education and providing support can really go a long way. And what that support might look like is actually linking these patients to other patients that have actually walked in their shoes. So having that peer network support can really be a strong, valuable resource. Um, I've also worked with patients who have been not able to have permanent housing, and they've been at risk for actually having their medication stolen, or they don't necessarily have reliable transportation. And so ensuring that not only are you connecting these patients to available resources where you can find them, but actually having a way to reach patients and providing regular check-ins or touch um, can really be impactful. So, again, I think that um, kind of echoing what everyone had already mentioned and what appears to be a, a common key theme is really that being aware of your patient as a whole um, and then knowing the resources that are available to help them navigate the potential challenges um, it's really a, a key approach to, to helping them overcome these barriers.
1: Okay. Well, thank you. And, and also, I think moving on when we talking about cultural biases, Dr. Bide, I think I would really like your experience of how we can deal with this disparities in diagnosis and care of patients of diverse back diverse backgrounds. And while you don't see patients with inflammatory bowel disease all the time, but maybe we can start with you, and you can help. Teach us of what how we should be dealing with these things.
2: Absolutely, um, you know. I think I think many of our health systems, uh, our clinics, uh, we we all make certain assumptions about uh, our patient population, whether it's well-meaning or or um, not well-meaning, whatever the that may be, and we may not realize. Um, how much that impacts the patient's perceptions of the care that they're receiving from uh, your health system or your clinic uh, as a whole. So I, I give one example um, that I'm sure many clinicians uh, experience are uh, patients missing your appointments. Uh, uh, why, would, why would someone miss, miss an appointment? Uh, and, and many times um, we may put that on the patient. Of uh, they're not invested in their healthcare. Uh, I can't believe they missed an appointment. They're incredibly, you know, medically ill. Um, you know, they still haven't gotten this lab work. They keep missing uh, the appointments to go get this done. So many times, uh, we we often forget. We, being the healthcare system as a whole, forget that uh, patients who fall into the com- complex category are patients who have been uh who are marginalized or, or could be classified as historically excluded all of the patient populations that were described uh on this uh, on this webinar today uh would fall into this category and so i think if as healthcare systems if we can take a step back to understand that the way we might design the healthcare systems in terms of how to access care uh, that the way they're designed could actually be set up as a barrier to some of our patient populations. Uh, it's not easy to make call to make an appointment to clinics. Uh, if you've never done that or it's been a while since you've called a clinic in your own health system, if you're a clinician, uh, I would encourage you to call uh, the call center and try and get an appointment to see how long you're on hold or how long you get disconnected until you're disconnected or... Uh, you're scheduled for an appointment, but it's scheduled with the wrong provider who happens to be out of town. So that appointment's canceled and not scheduled again. So sometimes the systemic barriers uh, and organizational uh, issues can actually be barriers to our patients accessing care. And so I would say that taking that step back to see what biases are we bringing in, in the table as healthcare organizations that could be impacting how patients receive care, get access to care, or just Try their best to get access to care, but are keep they keep hitting roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. Uh, and so again, I would I would encourage us as healthcare providers in these systems to really encourage us to go back to our systems and see what could we do to decrease some of those barriers so people can access care a lot easier.
1: And those are so many great points on so many ways. I. I can tell you as someone who's tried to get appointments for uh, some of my family, those are great points. That They're not easy. And and I think for any of the providers um, on the call who teach residents, fellow medical students, APP, and nurse and practitioners, I think it's our responsibility that before we see one of these patients and they get kind of labeled noncompliant or they're not interested in treatment, I think you brought great points, Dr. By. We need to know where their journey and why they're facing barriers rather than saying they don't wanna be treated. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, Dr. Bot. could you share your experience about this?
3: Yeah, so I actually would say that um, Dr. Bai did a great job in terms of explaining, I think, the common scenarios that we typically tend to see. From a medication perspective, I commonly hear a lot of says, commentaries. Uh, I commonly hear um terms like non-adherence, frequent flyer, uh, poor compliance. And so even uh, in this context, it's kind of, again, putting on the perspective, what are these factors that are leading us to potentially label the patient this way? Um, I think the other thing also that's uh, uh, interesting to potentially notice that sometimes we consider patients to not be a good historian. And so I think kind of going back to by um, point, that there is uh, something called implicit bias, and I think that this is something that as clinicians we can work on, uh, that rather than jumping to the assumption that, oh, kind of, again, they missed their appointment just because they don't prioritize their medical health, they miss, um, they're not taking their medication because they don't prioritize uh, the effect the that the medication is going to have. And I think just putting in the context and really taking a step back looking at the patient as a again as a whole, but also looking at their individual pieces and really ensuring that you understand what's happening in the patient's shoes before you're making any assumption. And I think that's really going to go a long way because once you put in the time and the effort to really understand the patient's life, the story, um, it makes it a lot more, a little bit more easier if you will, to kind of see what you can do to help them um, and make sure that you meet them halfway and getting them to feeling better.
1: Thank you, thank you. And, and Dr. Maldra, I'd be interested in your experience because it sounds like your, your clinic is almost like a small UN at times and must be a very interesting place to work at where you see people from all over the world.
0: Yeah, it definitely, it definitely does feel like that. Um, you know, the one patient comes in and and they're struggling with maintaining their shelter bed because they're using the bathroom so much. And the next patient um, comes in and and, um, doesn't, you know, doesn't speak English as a first language um, and uh, has just moved to the country um and is struggling to find work and is sick and um manage their children and you know the next patient um can be somebody who was recently incarcerated um and struggling to find their way um and uh, understand living in the world with a chronic illness um with their newfound freedom so i definitely it's it's each patient again is unique in that personalized approach but i think that there's um, oftentimes just concern or a bias that um, the patients come with, um, having seen oftentimes other clinicians, um, whether it's in the gastroenterology field or or not, um, that have kind of um, minimized. I mean, I think that there are, you know, again, since we have no gold standard test um, and IBD can look like a lot of different things, um, oftentimes there can just be a lot of um, Lack of commitment to the diagnosis before they get to an IBD clinician, um, and I think we're all aware of the changing demographic um, that we we mentioned in that first webinar, and that this really is a disease that can affect everybody. And um, while historically we haven't had data to um, determine the best way to treat everybody we need to have much more open approach um, because anybody can have this condition um, and many many manuscripts um, about IBD talk about the um, affluent patient population from more temperate climates um, and when you take a deep dive into our studies to look at who's who who's uh, represented when we assess treatments that's that is a patient population that we're mostly working off of um, and so there are just a lot of gaps currently and we, and, and thinking about those gaps, having an awareness of those gaps um, and understanding or working tra- towards narrowing those gaps so that we can have uh, a more comprehensive model for managing um, our patient population, which which looks very diverse um, and um, has very disparate needs, depending on the practice environment um, and the demographics of the patient um, population that is in your clinic.
1: No, I, I, and thank you for that answer. And, uh, and I think all those are great points because what it really comes down to is, is making sure that we're finding the barriers so that we can successfully treat our patients, which I find that can be one of the big things that I talk with the fellows where You know, anyone can come up with a great plan, but we really need to make sure the patient's okay with that plan. And I'd be interested in how you approach shared decision-making, Dr. Malter, to make sure that the plan that you recommend, you get buy-in from your patients, because some of our medicines can sound very scary, and I've had some patients say, why can't I just stay on prednisone, you know? Makes me feel real good.
0: Yeah, so I love to practice shared decision making. Um I attempt to do it with all of my patients. Um I definitely try and assess um where they're coming from and how comfortable they are weighing in on the decisions, understanding that I don't um intend to kind of give them a plan and say that you must stick with this, um, but rather trying to educate them um, and try and get their buy-in. I really like the ask, tell, ask method of communication to kind of figure out where they're at, provide them some information, and get a sense on how much they can kind of almost regurgitate back to me um, to understand what their knowledge base is, as well as understand the level of engagement that they have. And sometimes you may mistake their level of engagement. So you may think that they're not engaged, but it's because um, there's um, underlying psychosocial issues at play or um, the visit is taking a long time because as we all know, the conversations um, about IBD management are... Really um, at times unwieldy, um, especially with all of these additional factors at play beyond just disease management. Um, and so trying to get a sense of where they're at. And I think time is our is probably the biggest limitation, um, which nobody has has mentioned yet tonight. Um, but I think it is important to kind of um, identify that elephant in the room and um, address the fact that sometimes it takes a number of visits to really spend the time to get at what is impacting the patient's participation in their care and understand what their goals are. Um, And we as clinicians don't always have that luxury because because, um, of the way medicine is structured um, right now. And so taking time to um, assess where they're at um, and knowing that Sometimes you don't have to make the decision on that first visit or second visit. Um, and so sometimes more visits in order to get to that shared decision-making um, and making sure your patient is truly on board and having the opportunity to um, voice any concerns um, or questions that they may have um, in a non-pressured way.
1: And, and that that's great. And it sounds like we practice in similar manners. Um, it's funny. I usually tell the fellows when someone comes in and is acutely diagnosed and they're sick, and I tell them you got to show them you care. So, regretfully, I end up overbooking my clinic a lot because it can be a lot that first visit. So, I usually say, "Well, why don't we have you just come back and let's let's talk some more," and and that helps. Dr. Bot, tell us how how you deal with shared decision-making.
3: Yeah, so I'll say that one of the advantages that I typically have when I see patients is that uh, the plan has usually been outlined by the gastroenterologist prior to them coming to see me. So they know that a medication is likely in the future. Now, if they have the luxury of deciding which treatment to be on, then I'm happy to have that discussion about the potential option. Otherwise, I get to provide targeted education And so because my visits are a little bit more structured and focused primarily on medication, I actually will start my visit off with what questions and concerns you have that you want to make sure we definitely address today. And then I will basically outline my approach for the visit. So that basically will include a a med reconciliation, followed by a review of some health maintenance, followed by a review of symptoms, um, disease assessment, and then I actually would tackle the medication component. And it's really important to me to include the logistics of what that looks like and how it's going to impact the day-to-day living and what exactly does that mean on their end in terms of going forward and in terms of integrating this medication into their life. So it makes me, in this, in this approach, essentially, I had the ability to really make sure that I'm outlining what the future is going to look like for the patient going forward, and in the process, make sure that I get to know the patient and understand what their typical life for life looks like and what questions or hesitations they might have. But having the opportunity to ask that up front really goes a long way because if there's anything really um, bothering them or if there's anything that's a major concern, I will hopefully hear about it right off the bat. And I think engaging them, having a conversation, though not it being a didactic lecture about the medication, but kind of assessing, like, do you have access to this? What's your work schedule like? Um, any hesitations about potentially storing this medicine? So kind of just um, uh, asking questions relating to how the medication component ties in with their lifestyle, and then hopefully finding out more as we converse through the visit. Uh, will allow me to, to effectively deliver care um, in a patient-centered manner that's going to be most effective and useful by them.
1: And thank you, and thank you for that. And Dr. Bide, could you tell us is there anything else as gastroenterology providers um, that we should be doing to make sure that we're getting a patient's input so they so we are doing this shared approach?
2: Absolutely, I think what Doctors Bot and Malter shared uh, are, are spot on with the main components of shared decision making, uh, which is really uh, it comes down to making sure the patient's an active participant uh, in the discussion in their healthcare, uh, exploring their options, getting their preferences and values. So everything that was shared, uh, I would really encourage clinicians uh, to use that same approach, uh, no matter what shared decision-making approach you use, they all really have those core components of the patient being an active participant or the patient and family being an active participant, exploring options that are consistent with the patient's culture and values and their preferences. So uh, I think the take-home message is uh, no matter what model of shared decision-making that you use, uh, please use shared decision-making so you can really get your patient's voice uh, in their the design of their care plan.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And and that's going to kind of wrap us up for today, but uh, I can't begin to thank you, Dr. Bai, Dr. Bod, and Dr. Malter for joining us today on this webinar to discuss how we can manage patients with IBD from diverse patient populations who... You know we are. We need to know that these barriers exist, but you've given us some great tips of how we can overcome these challenges. How we can help patients because that's what we're here for, and making sure the future of the field knows and moves this topic forward. So you provided some great insight, and I would encourage everyone to uh, listen to Dr. Malter's previous webinar titled Through the Looking Glass, Managing IBD Care for Diverse pa- Patient Populations. You can find the link in the description area of this webinar. And thank you all for your time, and thank you all for being here today. You've been listening to Crohn's and Colitis Foundation Perspectives on ReachMD. To access this and other episodes in the series, visit ReachMD.com foundation, where you can be part of the knowledge.